Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. It's being taken by the market as an escalation of the trade war and, frankly, a material escalation at that between the U.S. and China. The question is, how far will this go? What will be the retaliation by the United States? And what is China's goal here? Is the goal just not to even try to have a trade deal with the U.S.? Joining us now, Matt Gertkin, geopolitical strategist for BCA Research uh, in Montreal, joining us by phone. Matt, let's start there. Do you think that China's allowance permitting the UN to go above seven per dollar was a clear retaliatory measure to the United States saying, we don't care anymore about preserving this level because you guys clearly don't want to make a deal with us. Hi. Yes. Thanks. To, uh, glad to be on. It's absolutely a retaliation. The 6.9 level was the level at which Trump was inaugurated. And seven, of course, is a psychological level as well uh, for the markets. And it's been known within uh, politic, political circles as well. Uh, so they're clearly saying, look, uh, you've gone to all uh, Chinese uh, exports to the U.S. Now we're going to uh, retaliate in the easiest, clearest way for us. And of course, it's also a way of stimulating their economy, which is hitting, uh, getting hit from this move. So, Matt, let's step back a little bit. What do you think the long game is for China? Because I'm sure that I think for a lot of investors, they just don't have a good handle on that. The long game for China is to, first of all, try to divide the United States from the, the rest of the West, uh, pr- particularly Europe, which is the swing player in this entire geopolitical conflict. Uh, it is to continue to weaken the U.S. Uh, by continuing the global uh, status quo, which is one in which uh, China is able to continue state-oriented mercantilist policies of its own uh, while the U.S. suffers from political division internally and is uh, and, and populism, etc., and is not able to focus uh, a concentrated uh, Western coalition against China. And the U.S., how could the U.S. potentially retaliate here, and what's the goal there? I think from the U.S. point of view, there's there's two goals. Trump is very short-term. Trump is, of course, thinking about the election. But what he's learned is that uh, the market has climbed the wall of worry repeatedly on the tariffs, and the U.S. economy has held up uh, pretty well. And that gives him room to pursue the trade war with China, where Americans are fairly skeptical. I mean, Americans do think China treats on cheats on trade, and Americans don't have a very favorable view of China. Uh, but meanwhile, he's got to try to tamp down other crises, whether they be domestic or uh, you know trade conflicts with other countries. He'll try to wrap those up in order to to keep the impact on markets somewhat controlled on his short-term time frame. Long-term, of course, the U.S. is worried about technological supremacy. So, Matt, the unilateral uh, style of negotiate trade negotiation of President Trump here. Are you suggesting that as it relates to the U.S. and China that that's not the way to go, that it needs to be more of a bilateral, kind of a more of a global uh, type of negotiation? Well, I don't have an opinion on it, but as an analyst, I think it's it's pretty clear that the U.S. would have greater influence over China if we had a, a unified coalition of the willing, where uh, basically about uh, 9% of China's GDP would be exposed to potential uh, trade impacts as opposed to today, which is you know about 5% or less, uh, because essentially the U.S. would be able to get Europe and Japan on the same page. 
uh, and then prosecute the trade practices and, and the cyber practices that it's most concerned about. And China at that point would be forced to capitulate because the entirety of its export profile would be threatened. Um, that's not the, the course Trump has cha- taken. And, and one of the reasons is because it takes a long time for the diplomacy with Europe and Japan. Uh, instead, he's chosen to lead from the front and to aggressively uh, prosecute the trade issues with China. And this has been a, a paradigm shift, but I think it was one that was long in coming. So just to give you a sense of the market reaction, NASDAQ down nearly 3%, 2 2.9% decline, S&P down 2.3%. Clearly, markets are taking this as a negative sign when it comes to global growth. But just to take a bigger historical perspective, as you're so good at doing, Matt, you know, what is the chance that this tit for tat becomes something more and escalates into something that's potentially even uh, military? High chance. I mean, I think actually we'll see saber rattling in the immediate term. And the reason for that is that the breakdown in U.S.-China relations has been taking place since the financial crisis. Uh, We have clearly moved beyond the period from 1972 to 2008, where we had this uh, huge detente between the U.S. and China, which was driven by the Cold War and China's industrialization. Now, China is a near-peer competitor to the United States. And as I mentioned, technologically, China is gaining on the U.S. and threatening the U.S. over the long run, uh, which is the ultimate determiner of the power of nations. So the U.S. is strategically rotating uh, to Asia-Pacific, regardless of the administration or political party. And and China, of course, is uh, feeling the heat. They're feeling contained, and they've got a slowing economy now, again, on a secular level. Uh, And that's going to uh, cause them to uh, indulge in nationalism. And uh, and these two things combined mean that these two countries will continue to see sanctions, tariffs. It's a persistent threat and saber rattling in the near seas of China. So, Matt, I think one of the the issues that President Trump has introduced recently as the talks seem to have uh, kind of broken down uh, between the U.S. and China is that maybe any type of meaningful negotiation will be pushed beyond the 2020 presidential election. Is that a reasonable view in your in your thought? We have actually consistently argued that China's best play is to wait until after the election. It, it just doesn't do them good to commit to uh, publicly to irreversible structural reforms that could heighten domestic economic risks for China before even knowing the outcome of the U.S. presidential election. So I think they're playing the long game, as is well known about China, but even specifically, Trump is playing a very short game, and they're taking advantage of that. And it's one reason why the Trump administration uh, has has become uh, angry. But also, of course, uh, Trump has ammunition, because as I mentioned, the, the market, you know, it climbs the wall of worry with the tariffs uh, thus far, and that gave him the ammunition to, to decide to go all the way. Uh, now he has to try to do damage control and make sure he doesn't create a bear market, which could lead to a recession and get him kicked out of office. Matt Gherkin, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Matt's a geopolitical strategist at BCA Research Base in Montreal, Quebec, uh, giving us some uh, you know, very valuable perspective on kind of the U.S.-China negotiations, not just here what we're seeing right now, but kind of a little bit of a historical perspective and, uh, and just hi- highlighting uh, the risk uh, to the market today and maybe even bigger risk going forward. Well, trade negotiations are without question facing new obstacles as President Trump 
increases tariffs once again, and the Chinese uh, just allowing the yuan to weaken below the 7 to 1 uh, level. To get a sense of what that means for currencies going forward, we welcome Dr. Win Thin. He's a global head of currency strategy at Brown Brothers Harriman in New York City, joining us on the phone. So, Dr. Uh, Thin, thanks so much for joining us. Does it appear to you that the Chinese are weaponizing the yuan? Uh, you know, the break of the seven level has, has always uh, captured everyone's attention, but I would just say that it, there's nothing magical about this level. Uh, the Chinese authorities have come out in the past, and they've come out today and saying they will not weaponize the yuan, and I take them at the word. They, we saw the disaster that the 2015 devaluation brought onto the Chinese market, so I think they will shy away from that. The one thing I would point out, and I ran a nice correlation study using uh, your function on your Bloomberg, the correlation between CNY, onshore yuan, and MSCI EMFX, that's a, a basket of EMX uh, currencies, it's running about 0.82, a very, very high correlation. So what that tells me is basically the Chinese authorities are allowing the yuan to sort of reflect uh, greater market forces, trading with the rest of EM rather than being um, somewhat pegged. So okay. you know, if you have the Mexican peso down with half, you know, 1.5%, 2%, you know, the rest of EM getting clobbered, it's not, it shouldn't be a surprise that the, the yuan is trading along with it. Certainly, that's the case. However, I do have to push back a little bit because this devalue or the uh, the weakening of the UN is was not a gradual issue. This was uh, the decline was the most since 2015 for any single day. Uh, it was a huge plunge and it was a shift in the PBOC's rhetoric. So, how do you sort of interpret that? Well, I have to say, look at the rest of EM. It's not like this, this is not happening in a vacuum. Uh, the EM has been selling off since Wednesday when the Fed delivered a less uh, dovish than, than expected uh, cut. So, you know, again, EM has been under incredible pressure. It's not just the yuan. You look at EM equities, it's pretty much the MSCI uh, EM has pretty much given up uh, over three quarters of this year's rally and it's heading back towards the January lows. So, you know, again, there's a lot of moving parts, I, and I have sympathy with what you're saying, but I really, uh, I guess I'm trying to be a sort of note of caution saying, look, the, the Chinese are responding in other ways. They've, uh, For instance, there's reports that they've uh, told uh, state importers to stop buying U.S. agricultural goods. Uh, and we know that the, this trade truce was really not lasting very long. So uh, what's happening, I think what the authorities are trying to do in China is they're separating the FX from the trade. I, I really do believe that that um, they don't want to let the genie out of the bottle. We, we saw what happened back in 2015. Massive capital outflows out of China, very destabilizing um, when they devalued it. I don't think they want to go down that road again. So, Dr. Thin, is there any sense of where the Yuan could go here? I mean, we're in very uncharted territory. It's been a, you know, a long time since we've seen this thing get off the seven peg. Any sense of where this could go? Uh, sure. Uh, and I again, I'm going to go take it from my lens of sort of the wider um, EM. Uh, I, I'm very negative on EM. As long as these trade tensions continue, um, you know, EM is, 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 is very, very vulnerable. It's not, not, not only the commodities, but also the Asian exporters and the China supply chain. So I'm, I'm very, very negative EM. And because I'm negative on EM FX, given that 0.82 correlation, I'm also very negative on, on the yuan. So uh, I think it'll have a, a seven handle uh, and we'll go up towards seven and a half. Um, again, there's nothing magical about the seven level. It's, it's, it's psychologically, it may be important, but um, you know, basically the, the authorities have, have pledged to uh, allow greater market forces 
for the exchange rate. And ironically, uh, that's what they're doing. And ironically, that's what the U.S. is, is probably going to complain about now. You know, we've already had Mr. Trump, uh, I think, tweet about currency manipulation, et cetera. But Including again, today. I say, <laughs> yes, exactly. Again, I say, look, this is it's not manipulating. This is, this, is, this is the market work. This is the, the markets being very negative on EM. This is actually a really good point, and Jonathan Farrow was going on about it this morning, about how uh, this is not necessarily China devaluing the UN. It is allowing the UN to just sort of fluctuate and exist within its market forces. So uh, the fact that you're reiterating that is, is, is an important and powerful point. I am wondering going forward, I remember once upon a time people used to talk about central banks and sort of the reaction function there, and certainly even President Trump saying, uh, you know, is anyone looking Looking currency manipulation, hey, is the Fed watching? Do you think that this will induce the Fed to cut rates further in order to weaken the dollar, or, for example, the ECB as well? Well, that's a, a, a very good question. Uh, and let me take the two, two things separately. Um, the Fed uh, it runs monetary policy for the, for the U.S. economy, but it's, it's been taking on a greater focus on, quote-unquote, international or global factors, we know that. You know, 20 years ago, uh, global factors would barely get a mention. But it's obviously clear, and this started under Yellen, that, that international and global conditions are a very big, important part of, of the Fed's reaction function. Now, Mr. Powell said it himself last week. He said, look, we're, the biggest thing that we are uncertain about is, is the trade war. We don't know how to deal with this. This is a very uncharted territory, and he admitted that. And I think that's, that's a, I would admit the same thing for us analysts. That's, it's, it's hard to analyze what the dollar should be doing within this context. That said... The, the, Mr. Powell gave in once uh, by cutting rates, and he was, I thought, on target when he said, look, let's see how the data come in. Um, the, the markets, your, your WIRP page is showing 100% chance of a cut in September. Um, and I think that overstates the case. I also think, I would also point out that the Fed Fund's futures market is pricing in three more cuts now by the end of the year. Uh, that, to me, is like a recession settings. I don't think we're there yet. Obviously, recession risk has risen, but I don't think the Fed is, is panicking yet. Um, then, that, you know, you open up the whole can of worms. Is, are, are they giving in to, the Trump, to Mr. Trump? Right. Is Trump doing this on purpose? It's, it's really crazy. Um, yep, there's uh, a lot, but, of, you know, lot of angles here that uh, everybody needs to try to get a handle on. Uh, Dr. Winton, thanks so much. Uh, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Dr. Winton, Global Head of Currency Strategy at Brown Brothers Harriman uh, in New York City, joining us on the phone. Well, according to our next guest, the connection between Trumpian uncertainty and financial market angst has become very clear, oddly making Trump's digital communications a leading economic indicator. Uh, to get the latest, let's welcome our next guest, Ben Breitholtz. Ben is chief data scientist for Arbor Research and Trading based in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, ben, thanks so much for joining us. So as, as you point out, Trump's tweets clearly impact the markets. Could you just give us a sense of kind of what you think the relationship is and maybe how investors are, are using this data? Yes. So the, what we're doing here is some, you know, some fancy natural language processing of Trump's tweets that initially started out as really me having fun with the data uh, about a year ago or so. But ever since his uncertainty level 
uh, measured via his tweets and the natural language processing and sentiment became so negative, we saw it start to actually impact not only what consumers and businesses are concerned about, but also markets now for the first time starting around May of this year. And we saw a heightened connection really between the rise in uncertainty across numerous topics via trade, financial markets, and now currencies, and what happened a week to two weeks later in, be it the S&P 500, or in a, uh, the, one of the tightest connections really is to the short end of the treasury curve and really rate hike timing. Uh, and with that heightened correlation, it's, it's really made Trump's digital communications an important leading indicator. And if I were to rate it, it would be from uh, impacting most, really, treasuries at the moment. And um, now it's finally starting to bleed into risk assets. Ben, I love the image of you at your computer, like, ha, 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 wouldn't this be fun to enter these words into a little system and see what it, you know, it shoots out bad, or it shoots out, you know, negative sentiment. And then, you know, you realize that it actually was, oh, wow, actually a real indicator. So I'm wondering, with respect to its indications, how forward looking is it? So what we found looking at cross correlations, which is just fancy for moving around the window and the lag or lead, is about a one to two week uh, lead time with measuring the uncertainty. And we do that by numerous different different topics. So we look at things like the so-called witch hunt that's used a lot and things like you know, talks about Democrats, and we remove a lot of that, try to get in down to the uh, really what is important from an economic standpoint. So the overall economy, the Federal Reserve, currencies, uh, financial markets, and so on. And that grouping has about a one to two week lead time on most importantly, rate hike timing, short end of the treasury curve. And now we're starting to see the same thing within the S&P 500 and and the VIX. So I think it's been a slow move, uh, whereas in May of this year, where where we got this big burst in negative sentiment from Trump's tweets, that started to impact mostly uh, the treasury curve. And but that has now Finally, as businesses are indicating that they are getting um, hurt, uh, evidenced by ISM, ISM non-manufacturing this, this morning, as well as numerous other surveys, um, be it the, the different regional Fed surveys, that is finally starting to really deteriorate and show that it could end up hitting the, the real economy. And the problem is economic data in the U.S. has been coming in below average, and uh, everyone's been hopeful for this rebound. But I think this added uncertainty is is really starting to wear on investors' minds. It's interesting. Here at Bloomberg, I mean, even on the Bloomberg terminal, you can type in tweets by Trump, and that'll give you a listing of all the, the, the tweets, and or you can set up an alert to have any time the president tweets, you can get a message or an IB. So investors clearly are looking for this information. Ben, have you gotten a sense of maybe how investors are, in fact, using some of the Trump uh, tweets into their investment process? Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's what we do um, here at Arbor Research and Trading is help provide a lot of this content and data. And what we found is that there are those that are inputting this into their own, uh, be it modeling capabilities or uh, models that, that kick out their actual trading signals or ideas. And then also subject to, you know, from a subjective standpoint in terms of gauging risk that is now arising in this market, they're pulling this information in just like we are and connecting it to, be it volatility like the VIX, 
debts or volatility of treasuries and so on in order to get a gauge for how much that is actually impacting the market. So case in point, the U.S. 10-year note yield is down to 176, about 26 basis points on a month-over-month basis, uh, looking back about a month. And we can attribute about 16 basis points of that 26 basis point drop to this Trumpian uncertainty via just some simple modeling of taking all this uncertainty measures and connecting it with major economic data releases. And so it is having an impact, and I think being able to gauge how much it is impacting markets and then what that lead time is, um, you know, is important for investors. And we're seeing that because the equity markets for the first time in a long time are finally being impacted by, by, by this so-called Trumpian uncertainty. So what exactly does a data word processing function look like? What's it looking for? Has it, has it grade things? Sure. So what it does is, within natural language processing, the key is this dictionary or, you know, so-called uh, lexicon. And what you, uh, you know, as a practitioner here, what we need to do is go out and find those words that have the, the meaning that you think they do um, and, and contextually. So what we do is work with a variation of something called the Lofran McDonald lexicon, which is very financial-based, meaning it'll have low misclassification rates in picking up words, for example, that are in that mean uncertainty, um, and they really do mean uncertainty in a financial standpoint. So that can be simple things like picking up on words of uncertain, confusion, unpredictable, and words like this, and then basically scoring them um, uh, on their frequency that as they exist, and then contextually how they exist within a, a given statement, be it a um, you know a paragraph or even just an individual you know set comment. So those get summed up um, with each day or each tweet, and then we're looking essentially at that aggregate to get a flavor for how much uncertainty, or if it's sentiment, we're looking for how negative or positive it is. Or is Trump or whoever uh, we're measuring uh, using words that are uh, favorable or unfavorable towards their target of what they're talking about. And again, that's all summed up with a, a, a kind of a simple scoring mechanism to get to an aggregate number to then measure quantitatively so we can use this yeah. information. Ben Breitholtz, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. Ben Breitholtz is a data scientist, chief data scientist at Arbor Research and Trading, talking about how not only does President Trump tweet, but now you can measure it and f- put it into your algorithm and uh, <laughs> trade off it, which is sort of uh, you know, this is something that people yeah. have increasingly been doing. And the question is just, what does it actually indicate? The idea that it's got a pretty close correlation with rates uh, shouldn't necessarily be entirely surprising given how trained his focus has been on the Federal Reserve. President Trump giving comments at the White House following the deadly shootings over the weekend uh, that took the lives of 29 people. President Trump uh, proposing a number of measures in response, saying uh, that there is a need for a bipartisan solution to identify uh, and act early on warning signs. He uh, really indicated an intention to work with social media companies and put part of the onus on them. He also talked about video games, which is sort of interesting uh, to see what he might do there. And then, of course, mental health, calling the perpetrators of the 
senseless crimes as mentally ill monsters. Joining us now to talk about what the potential policy implications are of his comments, Frank Wilkinson, Bloomberg Opinion Editor, and Anna Edgerton, Bloomberg Congressional Reporter. Frank, I want to start with you. What stood out the most? What stood out the most to me was that he actually did what he needed to do, which for him, he needed to denounce racism. And he did that very clearly uh, up in the beginning. He said the words white supremacy. Uh, So, you know, that was a step for him. That was the most important thing he did. I don't, frankly, take the policy uh, solutions offered as anything even remotely serious. But the cultural concession that he made at the beginning about racism was important, and I think it will help him. Anna Edgerton, we want to bring you in to get your thoughts on uh, the perhaps some policy implications here. Uh, give us just give us a sense of where you think uh, any type of uh, gun uh, legislation um, might be right now, and what the future could be. There are two bills that the Democratic-led House of Representatives has passed this year. They passed H.R. 8, which would close the so-called gun show loophole, which would require background checks for all gun purchases, including at gun shows and online. The other bill that they passed was called H.R. 112. It closes the so-called Charleston loophole, which makes it mandatory for any background check to have at least 20 days to be completed before the gun purchase is completed. Now, that's currently three days, which was how the shooter at the Charleston Church years ago was able to purchase a gun. Those bills have been passed by the House of Representatives and have not been taken up by the Republican-led Senate. So if there were to be very bipartisan, common-sense gun control legislation that's ready to go today, it would be those two bills. The president notably didn't mention those bills or any proposals that even resemble those bills. He did step forward to say that red flag laws could be on the table, which was something that came up in response to Parkland and certainly would be welcomed by gun control advocates, but is certainly seen as not um, not adequate to respond to this to this violence in our country. Frank, I want to go back to your point because it really stands out to me that that the most important thing from your perspective is less the policy proposals that may or may not really be developed upon, but rather President Trump's decision to denounce white supremacy and talk about white supremacy and racism in one breath in his words. And I'm wondering, why do you think he changed? Because he has sort of avoided condemning this in the past. He has, uh, very clearly, and um, it's beginning to cost him. That's one reason. Uh, So we have political costs in a lot of American suburbs where white women in particular are expressing some very strong discomfort with him on the issue of race. And uh, we have had, of course, the last couple of weeks where he uh, used quite inflammatory language to denounce four members of Congress and then subsequently denounced uh, another member of Congress, all of whom were non-white. There's not really a debate anymore among uh, most people about what his strategy is. And in fact, uh, some of his White House uh, staff have been fairly explicit about it. So, you know, for him to, to come out and say, okay, I am drawing a line. I am not going to wink at white supremacy in this case. I'm not going to, you know, just kind of nudge, nudge as I have in the past. I'm actually going to denounce it uh, because something has gone seriously too far. 
I think that's an important uh, development for him. So, Anna, what is the sense in Washington right now about these bills that are sitting on the Senate's uh, floor or on the desk of the senators? Will it, in fact, move forward or will the events of this weekend perhaps, you know, when the Congress gets back, maybe open up? new negotiations. Well, that's one thing I was looking for from the president's speech today, whether or not he would show any openness to these bills, and he didn't. And so that, to me, says that Mitch McConnell has very little incentive to actually take up these bills. And it's going to be a very awkward position for the Senate Majority Leader. He has taken great pride in declaring himself to be the grim reaper of Democratic legislation, and that he has been able to kill all bills that have been passed by the House of Representatives. That's not playing well for him right now. And the Republican-led Senate is going to come under a lot of pressure to do something besides just approve the president's nominees for uh, judicial positions. There could be some negotiation on red flag laws. As the president suggested this morning, he would like to pair gun legislation with immigration reform, which is absolutely not going to happen. They couldn't even get immigration reform that was supported by Republicans through the Republican-led House. Like, Republicans couldn't get on the same page about this. So to think that that could be, those two very controversial issues could be paired together and become law is just absolutely not going to happen in this Congress. Frank, uh, President Trump did mention guns, saying that there should be rules to prevent people who are at grave risk to public safety from getting access to firearms and to allow law enforcement to seize them quickly. Just real quick, do you think that there's anything in that that has teeth, or is that just sort of lip service? Uh, I doubt it, and here's why, because of the context it was in. I mean, when when you start mentioning uh, mental illness, Uh, of which the United States has no greater propensity than any other nation. When you start mentioning video games, which Europe and Japan have just as much as we do, clearly video games and mental illness are not the issue that separates the United States from the rest of uh, the OECD countries in terms of guns. What separates us are our gun laws. And if you're not going to address the gun laws and you're bringing out these red herrings of mental illness and uh, and, uh, video games, then at that's a different story. Frank Wilkinson, um, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, thank you so much for joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And Anna Edgerton, congressional reporter from Bloomberg News, joining us from our 99.1 studios in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.